Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on KDCI 88.9 FM. This is Miguel Alejandro here with Radio Anapal interviewing a special guest today. We have Professor Luis Decipio here, PhD, standing as a professor of Chicano studies and political science. Thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. He is also a um, the director of the what Jack P. Jack W. Peltison Center for the Study of Democracy. There we go. And uh, he specializes in immigration, ethnic politics, and the U.S. electorate. So opening notes, do you have anything just kind of to go off first thing, first thing you want to talk about? Well, we're recording this on uh, Tuesday of quite a consequential week for immigration policy. Uh, President Trump has uh, announced a series of changes to what have been longstanding uh, policies and practices of the United States. One thing I want to go back to is the policies that um, you're talking about and that we're talking about are policies such as uh, his wanting to create the wall with stretches on the 2,000 mile border from um, California all the way to Texas across the U.S.-Mexican border. And um, another one that's been really relevant the past couple uh, hours even is the ban of um, immigrants coming from seven Muslim-majority countries, including uh, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Somalia, Sudan, Libya, and um, Yemen. Yes, uh, all in the name, according to Sean Spicer, their press secretary of uh, national security. So one thing I want to ask you is um, specifically, we'll kind of split up into two parts, but specifically starting with the ban on immigrants from Muslim-majority countries. Has this happened before, and what is the historical context of banning people prematurely um, to, quote, harbor national security uh, neutral? Well, this is a new policy. There have been slowdowns in migrants from some specific countries after specific uh, uh, acts of terrorism. What's unique in this is it extends not just potentially to um, refugees, where the president has a lot of authority delegated by Congress, uh, but also to visitors, you know, either tourists or, or business visitors, or even to people with green cards you know, who are permanent residents. And that's very unusual. And in fact, four federal courts acted over the weekend to block that part of the executive order. The president does not clearly have authority uh, to block the migration of, of permanent residents. Another thing I want to ask is the blockage has uh, largely been um, denounced by members uh, all across the UN. So do you think that um, other nations, specifically those nations such as Iran, who uh, retroactively went back and banned U.S. people from coming in, do you think that this can hurt relations or that um, the majority of world leaders will kind of see above and uh, not really take into account what Trump is saying? Oh, I think they're very much taking into account what he's saying because he's been belligerent, antagonistic, threatening on you know existing policy on a whole bunch of different dimensions. Mm -hmm. I guess the longer term answer would be this has at least been announced now as a, with the exception of Syria, a relatively short term policy. 120-day ban on uh, refugees and then a 90-day ban on, on migrants um, from all of those countries except Syria. If at the end of 90 days or 120 days this sort of dissipates and, uh, uh, you know, sort of disappears, I think the world community will, mm -hmm. you know, shrug and put up with it and say, that's just Donald Trump being Donald Trump. If, on the other hand, it is the beginning of either an expansion of restriction to other Muslim-majority countries, um, a more permanent, you know, any sort of expansion, mm -hmm. then I think it becomes genuinely an issue for the world. And here I'd point particularly to Germany, which has taken an amazing number of refugees 
for a country that's traditionally been sort of resistant to immigrants mm -hmm. um, over the last several years. And we take a very small number because of our geographic distance from from you know many of the places where there are difficulties in the world. Um, you know, Germany quite reasonably a good ally could say, you know, you're not doing your part, and we we reject this policy. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to imagine that other world leaders are also very concerned with the seeming focus on Muslims. Um, you know, that violates principles of you know United States democracy, the Constitution, um, but it also antagonizes our enemies. And you know, there uh, even some leading Republicans in the United States Senate have raised concerns. You know, Senators McCain and, and Graham um, saying you know this is not going to have much positive effect and will certainly uh, mm -hmm. enable ISIS recruiting. So you know. It, I'm being a little cautious in that I think it depends on how it plays out to know how the world community yeah. will really respond. Well, as uh, in an interview, uh, or actually at a rally, Bernie Sanders said, the, the senator from Vermont said that this just gives munitions to the Muslim extremists saying, mm -hmm. you know, this clearly shows that you know, they're unwelcome here. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what they're trying to portray um, overseas. Uh, another thing I want to ask you was about Rudy Giuliani. Um, he went on to, he's one of Trump's right-hand people, went on to Fox News and said that this wasn't exactly a Muslim ban, but they were trying to package it as a ban on seven countries where um, terrorist attacks were coming from. So why not Saudi Arabia? <laughs> well, because Saudi Arabia is a major ally and a supplier of oil that we've traditionally used. Actually, we're doing a little bit better on oil uh, recently in terms of domestic production. But, uh, you know, the uh, first of all, Mayor Giuliani um, may not be as close to President Trump as he likes to present himself. He's been sort of pushed out over the last uh, couple of months. So some of some of what I heard in, in Mayor Giuliani's statement was a little boastful um, and maybe not accurate. That said, President Trump has a has a critical challenge here. He promised his electoral base that he would create a, a ban on Muslim migration and then subsequently went to extreme vetting. Um, you know, sort of as a way of slowing it. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a small piece of that pie. If he's genuinely committed to um, banning Muslim migration, he has to take on some of our allies and not relatively weak states or states that we have long-term antagonism with, like uh, Iraq and Iran. Mm -hmm. And um, another thing that was pressing was that um, Iran currently sits with some nuclear capabilities. Mm -hmm. And I know people have expressed fear that, you know, in their re retaliation, you know, those kind of capabilities might be pointed towards the U.S. Mm -hmm. So if people are fearing some kind of, you know, nuclear apocalypse, just like way out into the future, um, do you have any like assuring words for them? <laughs> you know, that's a little outside of my areas of expertise. Mm -hmm. um, I can certainly recommend some of my colleagues who might be in a better position to talk about that. My understanding is that they don't have a delivery mechanism at the moment mm -hmm. uh, to get something uh, to the United States. I think we genuinely, generally and genuinely have to be worried about non-state actors and nuclear weapons who mm -hmm. would smuggle, mm -hmm. you know, dirty bombs, you know, less yeah. protected kinds of munitions into the United States and set them off in some locality where the the effect would be very dramatic in a small space and more modest than, you know, something delivered by a missile. Um, th that is why we should be concerned about our foreign policy and by, you know, changes made by President Trump to the National Security Council um, over the weekend. But mm -hmm. that may be a little bit separate from a conversation about immigration. Certainly, it, but your underlying point is absolutely yeah. right. It angers the people that we should at least be um, trying to uh, come to uh, come to terms with on some of these issues mm -hmm. for no particular reason. I mean, 
the premise of President Trump's assertions about you know slowing refugee migrations from these countries or um, slowing migration generally is that um, we've had bad people come to the United States. I think mm-hmm. he actually used a term like that from these countries, and there isn't actually evidence of that, um, mm-hmm. at least in terms of refugees. So the you know if if we were achieving some foreign policy goal then you might be able to justify this and this is why uh, President Obama slowed migration um, didn't stop it but slowed it from one country uh, in 2011 to add some extra vetting mm-hmm. um, and President Trump has has looked back to that example uh, but these countries have not been particular sources of refugees that have then gone on to do bad things in the United mm-hmm. States so you create enemies for no particular gain. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, turning to uh, the protests that have been sparked by the ban on, on uh, immigrants from the seven Muslim-majority countries, there's been protests, uh, thousands of people at JFK, LAX, um, at pretty much airports all around um, the U.S. and in even airports around the world where people are being detained and not allowed to go, come to the U.S. and even being threatened with deportation, especially um, even some international students who are just studying abroad. So my question is, Besides the protests and the day-to-day chanting and poster making, what can, especially us as uh, students and faculty here at UCI, what can we specifically do to maybe get organized and um, in in short term resist? Yeah. Well, this is going to be a long-term battle, not a short-term battle. So I think that's probably observation number one. Mm -hmm. Um, The presidency in the United States is a four-year term with some very narrow exceptions for impeachment that have actually never been executed. Um, So I would plan on being attentive to the Trump administration for for several years to come. Um, So that's lesson number one. I mean, we have to know what's going on. And, you know, don't react to the first Facebook post that you see. Go do some research from a reliable source, a newspaper or a, you know, non-ideological media source. Fake news is running rampant now. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and we have to be careful about that. I mean, last night, you know, again, this is being recorded on Tuesday and when President Trump fired the acting attorney general, you know, there was immediately sort of this harking back to what uh, President Nixon had done now 40 years ago, also firing an acting attorney general. And that led people to make some assumptions that were not actually accurate. You know, it was more narrow than, uh, than, than, than the Nixon example. So, yeah, so, you know, long-term battle, get your facts straight, um, and then find ways that you can work co- collaboratively with other people. Um, and whether that's going to um, an airport for a spontaneous protest or going to a large march like the Women's March the week before, or targeting local elected officials who can achieve some of the goals you want or block some of the objectives you don't want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, very important. Doing things alone can be important. Writing a letter certainly makes you feel better, but when you're there with 100 or 500 other people, yeah. you get a little bit more attention. Um, so, you know, this congressional district um, where UCI um, sits is represented by, by a Republican, Mimi Waters. This hasn't been a big issue for her. It shouldn't be. I mean, it's, it, yeah. it's, all, it's all new. She needs to be informed of what her constituency thinks. And to the degree that that information can come from well-informed people across the ideological spectrum, or at least across the partisan spectrum, mm-hmm. she'll listen more than you know a bunch of angry students in her office. Yeah. Angry students aren't bad, but if you can get some parents from the community and some teachers from the community and some, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to build a bigger coalition. That's very important. Um, you also have to show support, I think, for elected officials and, and offices that are doing things that you believe are right. Mm-hmm. 
So to the degree, for example, that some of your listeners may support sanctuary policies, and the term is ambiguous, and I think you have some questions about that, but, you know, whatever that means, support them to the degree that a jurisdiction has, you know, is is doing something it thinks is sanctuary, support them, praise them, Um, not just on, you know, social media, but actually go to offices and thank elected officials. They they like to get that, too. Um, Certainly at the state level, um, the state legislature and our new attorney general, Javier Becerra, have committed to using state resources um, to, you know, defend immigrant rights and, and defend jurisdictions who are doing different forms of sanctuary. Tell your local member of the assembly, member of the state senate, mm-hmm. that you support that, so that they get the appropriations they need to actually do what they've committed to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, clearly, I'm I'm a political scientist, so I'm focusing on sort of the institutions of government. Uh, but you have to, f- you know, you have to find the political community that you're comfortable with, and if that's providing, you know, direct assistance to um, to newly arrived immigrants, that's what you should do because that's where your passion is. If it's mm-hmm. um, you know, working outside of the political system. I mean, obviously, I believe yeah. you have to work within it. But you know, to the de- if you can build bridges to communities that are marginalized from politics, feel alienated from politics, that's important because you're building your your constituency. Mm-hmm. Um, having uncomfortable conversations with family. Uh, yeah, that's it's, where I first started when I first got into the selection. I most well, all my family is Latino, mm-hmm. um, but some of them are just like were more apathetic than anything they just didn't care and i said no this is something you have to pay attention to because you know you're going to live here for 40 more years um they've lived here all their lives and mm-hmm. i was like this is you know your future as much as mine so it's, it affects you as well yeah and you know you have an in you have a connection to your family and everybody else has a connection to their families that that nobody else has they'll listen to you more than they'll listen to you know some pundit on mm-hmm. whatever television or on facebook or whatever so you know encouraging finding what people care about and showing them how what you care about relates to what they care about. Um, Another suggestion, and this will only apply to some of your listeners, but uh, there's a large share of the U.S. population, immigrant population, that are eligible for naturalization, that have been here five years as permanent Mm -hmm. residents, uh, but have, you know, put all, uh, aren't necessarily haven't made the step to naturalize. Now, some genuinely don't want to, and I, you know, I respect that decision and they have that right, but mm-hmm. if they're committed to the United States, they do see their future here, for example, um, uh, they want to protect their rights here, um, getting them to go through what is an incredibly bureaucratic process to naturalize, mm-hmm. um, you're changing the future of the nation if you do that. Um, helping them with a little money because the application costs... Uh, I think it's five hundred eighty-five dollars. Yeah, um, helping them study for the uh, the naturalization exam, which is for a college student relatively, it's like a driver's license test. You know, yeah. there are hundred questions you have to memorize them. But you know, if you're sixty and not too comfortable in English, that's it's a little it's a lot harder. Yeah, um, my dad actually just got his uh, citizenship about a year ago, mm-hmm. and I had to help him out because he's like you know an older gentleman, and it, just like the writing out because I think they do it in English and Spanish. Well, if you're um, if you're as old as your dad is and you've been here, there are two rules. If you um, if you're sixty and you've been here twenty years, or if you're fifty five and you've been here fifteen years, mm-hmm. you can take the exam, the oral part of the exam, um, in in your native language. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're younger than that, no, you have to take it in English. Understood. Um, so another thing I want to go back to is uh, students and protesting. When people go on, um, and I, I know we shouldn't like listen to them uh, per se, but when people go on Facebook and they say, protesting never works, protesting never works. Um, in your mind, historically, in the context of it, 
does protesting work or does it not? Um, we would not have the Constitution of the United States were it not for a group of uh, uh, alcohol producers in Western Massachusetts under the command of a guy named Daniel Shays, and that was Shays' rebellion that led uh, the country to hold the constitutional, mm. what became the Constitutional Convention. Um, we wouldn't have the civil rights advances of the 1960s if you hadn't had what by that point was you know 60 years of on-the-ground protests, mm -hmm. starting very, very small and getting, getting much larger over the years. Um, Vietnam may not be the best example, but certainly a lot of people turned out for many years to uh, discourage uh, U.S. participation and eventually took longer than it should have. Um, the U.S. sort of pulled back on its, uh, the war in Vietnam. Um, uh, on the other side of the ideological spectrum, um, abortion rights, I'm sorry, um, uh, 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 anti-abortion protesters have kept the issue on sort of front and center in American politics and mm -hmm. have considerably limited access to uh, you know, safe abortions and subsidized abortions um, through what's now, you know, 25 years of protest. So the American system is built on protest. It's, there's a, a challenge in that protesters often want an immediate effect because, you know, they've turned out, they see yeah. half a million people around them, they feel, oh, that should change things. Well, it's it usually takes longer, process. yeah. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you need to focus the protest on a specific demand rather than we want a completely new system. Um, that might happen sometimes, and maybe my constitutional example was that. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, as the as the protests become more focused on a specific piece of legislation or a specific change to policy or um, you know a specific outcome, they become more effective. Mm -hmm. uh, so taking this this a step further, because I've heard this a lot, especially in my circle of friends, does the destruction of private property delegitimize a protest cause? That, I think, is ultimately a very personal decision. I would say that that is not going to be an effective strategy, and it's mm -hmm. not one that I would personally participate in. I think if you're willing to go that route, you have to be willing to accept the legal consequence that you are, in fact, violating mm -hmm. the law and are subject then to the laws that you may not respect very much. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, peaceful protest gets a lot more attention and gets a lot more support from people who are sort of marginal to the movement than violent protest. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people are just so frustrated that, that they feel violence is the answer. I'm not there, but I'm also not 21 anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, definitely um, something more. I would certainly say that if you're in an um, ambiguous immigration situation, uh, certainly if you're mm -hmm. undocumented or a DACA student, um, but probably even if you're a legal permanent resident, I would do my best to avoid any confrontation with the law that could challenge your status. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick uh, break here for a couple of public service announcements, and we'll be right back. This is Miguel Alejandro for Radio Nepal, here with Luis DiCipio, PhD, a professor of Chicano Latino Studies and Political Science. We'll be right back. Hello, everybody. This is Miguel Alejandro for KUCI 88.9 FM on Radio Nepal, here sitting in with my special guest today, uh, I am here with Professor of Chicano Latino Studies as well as Political Sciences and uh, the Director of the Jack W. Peltison Center for the Study of Democracy, um, Louis DiCipio, PhD. Thank you for joining us. Oh, again. my pleasure. Uh, so we're, we're quickly going to change gears to talk a little bit about um, Mexico and the U.S. relation and specifically Trump's plan for the wall. So um, just give us, you know, if we haven't heard about it and if we've been living under a rock for a couple of days, um, what's the broad context of what Trump plans to do 
as he promised in his presidential campaign. Yeah, throughout the campaign, one of his reliable um, sort of crowd-pleasing lines was uh, that they're going to build a wall or he's going to build a wall and the crowd would chant back, build that wall. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, he he's honored that commitment as, as much as he can as president. Um, he has directed through executive order the Department of Homeland Security uh, to use pools of money that it has around the agency uh, to plan the expansion of the existing wall. Mm -hmm. The existing wall is about 700 miles of the 1,900-mile border with Mexico. Um, there isn't that much money sitting around. I mean, yeah. there are millions of dollars, but you can go through that very, very quickly. So for President Trump to honor this commitment, he needs uh, the um, Congress of the United States to appropriate uh, money to expand the existing wall. Mm -hmm. He hasn't been very specific with them about how expansive he envisions it. Certainly during the campaign, he talked about the entire U.S.-Mexican border. Um, and for anybody that's ever been to, to southwest Texas, uh, even if you believe in a wall, you don't really believe in a wall in you know parts of southwest Texas mm -hmm. where there, A, nobody lives, and B, you have two and 300-foot cliffs going right down to the Rio Grande. Mm -hmm. you know, no, nobody can cross there even, even if they wanted to and even if there were, you know, you know, a statement that there's no enforcement here. Mm -hmm. So, it, so it's not really clear how how much more wall he wants to build. Um, the estimates for the cost of this, um, you know, if it's just in the areas where it's sort of physically realistic to build a wall, are um, the Senate Republicans are saying somewhere between twelve and fifteen billion dollars with a B. Um, a, a more objective analysis from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology says $45 billion. Those mm. are both big amounts of money, yeah. uh, particularly for a party like the Republicans that have traditionally, or at least in, in the modern era, been very fiscally conservative because mm -hmm. this would add to the national debt. Um, how, how much President Trump really wants to expand it, how much re congressional Republicans are willing to go along with, is completely unclear, and an executive order doesn't resolve that in any way. Mm -hmm. um, this one, I think, you know, unlike um, the, the the refugee ban and and the migration ban that we've we've talked about earlier, um, is one where something will be done, but probably not much will mm -hmm. be done, and then President Trump can declare victory if he wants. And then when he yeah. runs for re-election, he can say, oh, we should build more, and, and people will go along with it. I mean, mm -hmm. people will rhetorically go along with that. Um, so I would suspect that, you know, we might see another... 100, 150 miles of physical barrier like mm -hmm. wall, um, which is the sort of standard is a foot underground and nine feet um, up in the air. Mm -hmm. uh, and then further investment of which we have an extensive amount in the current era of uh, sort of technological wall, you know, motion detectors, drones, mm -hmm. heat sensors, you know, all the kinds of technology to see if people are crossing in an area where they haven't traditionally mm -hmm. And then you can think about putting in extra extra resources. That stuff is very, very expensive. It's a big boon to defense contractors. Boeing loves it. Um, it's not very effective is the the yeah. interesting thing. Um, the, the size of the unauthorized population hasn't really grown um, since 2008 by all estimates. And about half of unauthorized immigrants in the United States come in on legal visas anyway, meaning they They just them. overstay their yeah, visas. Yeah, and then they yeah. overstay visas. Mm -hmm. So it's, the wall is a big symbolic thing. I mean, let me, I mean we have... As I say, about 700 miles of wall, it has been effective in a way. It has encouraged people to stay longer in the United States and then to overstay visas. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't want to minimize that, but adding to it has doesn't has a sort of marginal you know, marginal effect is pretty pretty minimal. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, President Trump also committed, as part of that executive order, uh, to hire 5,000 more Border Patrol agents and mm-hmm. 10,000 more 10,000 more Customs, Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents. Um, that, again, is incredibly expensive. Uh, Congress would have to appropriate the money for that. And those are very hard positions to mm-hmm. fill. Um, the, the, the training is extensive. Often the posting, particularly if you're in the Border Patrol, is in pretty isolated areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally what happens with a lot of the people they hire is they get the training, you know, get yeah. the good training, and then they go work for a local police force in, you know, wherever mm-hmm. they're from or in a city or a suburb, um, which is easier and pays almost as much and is a lot more yeah. commodious. You can have a family easily. So it will be, it's very hard for, even if Congress appropriated the money, to hire 5,000 more board, to, to actually fill those positions. Mm-hmm. Um, the immigration agents are, are, are somewhat easier to, to ramp up. Mm-hmm. Um and just kind of to put this into historical context for some people, because uh, especially a lot of people here on campus who are barely becoming politically active and kind of politically aware, this is not the first time that a proposal for a wall has happened, especially coming from the GOP. Mm-hmm. So kind of what was the last recent time with President mm-hmm. Bush? What was his um, proposal and how is it different and the same? Um, the uh, the existing wall that I say covers about 700 miles of the of the U.S. southern border uh, was largely built um, in after after 2006. Congress passed uh, uh, the appropriating legislation in mm-hmm. 2006 and was built sort of 2006, seven, eight, nine. Um, the the idea there was to demonstrate to the nation that the border could be controlled mm-hmm. such that. Congress could then move on um, and pass a comprehensive immigration reform. Um, And it was very much a sort of a a Faustian bargain. You know, we'll build this, whether we think it's necessary or not, um, so that we can make the assertion that, you know, migration is under the control of the U.S. government. And then we can look at other things Mm -hmm. like a legalization program, a guest worker program, perhaps changes to, to the foundations of legal immigration, you know, bigger immigration bill. By my measure, you know, whether that was a good decision or not, the evidence is there, you know, unauthorized, the size of the unauthorized migrant population in the United States has not grown since 2008. Consequently, you know, the wall to the degree that, you know, that was part of the story, and I think it was part of the story, certainly, Mm -hmm. um, was effective. Um, The reason that Congress did not continue to build beyond the the 700 miles is that the technology, the the, the expense was just huge. And um, they made the decision, and I think the accurate one that technology could replace a physical barrier in large parts of the of the southern border. Um, even that's very expensive, but it it's more adaptable than a, yeah, a physical structure. It's a lot structure. more effective than you yeah. know, well, I mean the combination. So you know, in in an area like uh, San Isidro, a wall sort of I mean it's symbolically horrible, but mm-hmm. it sort of makes sense. I mean, a lot of people would cr- used to cross there. Yeah. Now there's a wall they can't cross there. So, you know, uh, but in, you know, sort of Eastern New Mexico or, you know, certainly parts of South Texas where there aren't many roads on either side of the border, mm-hmm. you don't get a lot of people trying to cross where there isn't an infrastructure mm-hmm. for them to survive. Um, the wall has had the very deleterious effect of migrants going to much more dangerous places when they do try to cross. Mm-hmm. So there've been many more deaths along the border. Um, the cost of getting assistance to cross the border, the coyotes have uh, you know, gotten much more expensive than mm-hmm. they used to be. Um, Which is actually another thing that I wanted to bring up because um, some people who are um, kind of more pro-immigration are saying that the wall could uh, deter, like especially women and children who are trying to come here as undocumented citizens from coming in the first place because not just are, are they coming from Mexico, but they're also coming from Central American countries. So 
maybe um, their you know hopes and dreams might be shattered of coming to the U.S. and reaching the American dream, but they'll be able to stay where they're safe or safer in relative terms than crossing the entirety of Mexico by Cayote or mm-hmm. uh, how you said you know pretty much no means with very little money. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly the southern border has become the, the target, not just of Mexicans seeking down to the United States, but Central Americans, as you indicate, um, increasingly folks from Africa, um, large number of Cubans are coming in now, you know, sort of through the, the length of Central America mm-hmm. up through Mexico. So it's, you know, that it is a point where people believe that they can get access to the United States. And as the U.S. has sort of enacted more barriers, you're starting to get populations of those national origin communities in Mexico, which mm-hmm. you've certainly never had before. Um, the uh, One thing I'd, I'd call you on is I wouldn't use the term undocumented citizen, mm-hmm. because that's oh, really gotcha. conflating two categories, and it would certainly be nice if there were a path from undocumented to citizen, but mm-hmm. f- with very narrow exceptions, there aren't. So and un- there is no sort of current means by which somebody who enters the United States in an unauthorized status... Um, absent congressional action, mm-hmm. um, can uh, can become a permanent resident, let alone a, a citizen. I understood. Um, okay. So you talked a little bit about the economic cost and the um, estimates from MIT about the $45 billion, but what about the political cost that people are concerned with? Um, we've already seen uh, Enrique Peña Nieto, who is the Mexican president, who mind you, is not very well liked by many Mexicans. He's actually more liked this week than he yeah. was about two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> now he's being a little bit more liked because of his reaction to it. Yeah. But um, his cancellation of the meeting with Trump, mm-hmm. um, will this in any way affect our political acumen with Mexico and you know by subsequent NAFTA? Yeah, it very much depends on what comes now. Um, at the moment, this is just a diplomatic tiff and you mm-hmm. know the Mexican foreign office is smart enough to sort of glide over this if things work out. President Trump um, made another commitment during his campaign, and that's that Mexico would pay for the wall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was, <laughs> that was sort of taken out of whole cloth. Um, one path that he has thought about uh, that would nominally allow Mexico to pay for the wall is to tax remittances. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the short term, that would actually raise some money, but then, you know, migrants are pretty creative in, in finding alternative yeah. paths. It would just make it more dangerous to transfer money or, or goods or money across the border. Um, another thought that came out of the Trump campaign, I'm sorry, the Trump administration last week and was almost immediately pulled back was an import tax. 20%, right? 20% import tax um, on not just Mexico, but all countries with which the United States has a trade deficit. This in pr- 20% is arbitrary. In principle, this could be a part of a tax reform package because a lot of countries mm-hmm. actually do have these import taxes. So, it, you know, the, the I, if, if this were a rational administration, that would not be uncharacteristic to talk about something mm-hmm. like that, not 20%, you know, some amount. Um, Trump, of course, you know, sort of overstated, went that, oh, and this would pay for the wall. Well, that immediately made it a political issue, not a taxation issue. Yeah. Um, and that would mean, in a sense, that we all would pay for the wall with avocados and cars and, and stuff. Our iPhones apparently have lots of parts from Mexico. I didn't mm-hmm. realize that. So anyway, the if, if something like that were to go forward, that would make it very difficult for um, the United States, Canada, and Mexico to renegotiate NAFTA in a sort of... Um, you know, in in a way that benefits all parties, mm-hmm. and that's that's what diplomatic negotiation has to be. You know, yeah. that everybody gets something out of it. Let me say, 
Canada, the United States, and Mexico each have problems with NAFTA as it's currently implemented. Not surprisingly, it's a 20-year-old yeah. treaty. Um, it is time for a renegotiation of NAFTA, but not with one of the parties of the United States saying, and we're starting with this new high yeah. tax that is going to disadvantage you, Mexico. Um, so to answer your question in a very long yeah, no, 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 way, a- you know, it, it, at the moment, Trump's bluster isn't necessarily hurting relations with Mexico. It's not making them very positive. He very much has the potential to do that on how he goes forward. Now, I will give the Trump administration credit that within hours of this sort of throwing out this idea of a 20% import tax, they pulled it back. So they realized that that needed to be thought out more. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe maybe it's because they decided 15 is better than 20. I mean, I don't know that. Or it has to be a part of a bigger, um, mm-hmm. you know, glo- global policy for U.S. trade. Mm-hmm. And do you think that if the 20% tax or arbitrarily any number of percent tax were to be put onto uh, imports, would it be uh, kind of parallel to his make American, buy American um, kind of political... Uh, uh. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the the, the, the prince, a, a populist, you America first, by his own words, administration, yeah. probably wouldn't surprise us if the tariff policy, and that's what we're talking uh-huh. about, um, were used in such a way to encourage Americans to buy American-produced goods. Um, I may agree with that or disagree with that. I think that's a reasonable proposition to talk about. It's unreasonable if you target it to one country, to Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's un- unreasonable if you target it on paying for a specific object that is a, a bone of contention between those mm-hmm. two parties. And it's particularly inappropriate in that there is a trade agreement between the United States, Canada, and Mexico called NAFTA that seems to prohibit doing something like that unilaterally. Mm-hmm. What you could imagine, though, is a situation where Mexico comes to the table and it has some particular issues with NAFTA around agricultural issues, the ability of the U.S. to sell um, certain agricultural goods, uh, wheat and corn and mm-hmm. sugar, more cheaply in Mexico than Mexican producers can. You know, some sort of equivalent tax to raise the cost of U.S. products there so that Mexican producers are not at an unfair disadvantage. That would be fine, except that producers of each of those products in the United States mm-hmm. would be sort of upset with the Trump administration. So that's why it's hard to do these trade negotiations. Um, In the end, I I think President Trump on each of these policies that we've talked about, on sanctuary cities, on refugees, um, on um, the wall, moved too quickly. He needed to have his people in place, you know, his secretaries Mm. of all of the departments and then the assistant secretaries, so that they could vet these policies and say, well, okay, we can do this, but that creates a problem here and mm-hmm. how do how do we balance those and then what do we really want to achieve but his sort of desire to be ahead of the news cycle and to shape the debate um, has caused him I think repeatedly to do things that are ill-informed and under-advised and then have to either defend them despite the evidence or mm. to uh, back off a little bit uh-huh. so now let's move a little bit to um, the Latino population specifically undocumented people um, who are already, if they're living in the U.S., especially as students, who are already uh, had high tensions among themselves um, when he was just running for president, now that he is president, um, what can you maybe say to reassure any undocumented people or any anybody who is maybe has a family member or friend who's un- undocumented, and what can you say to um, more or less assure them you know, of, of how things are going to turn out? I wish I could offer reassurance, mm-hmm. um, and um, I, I guess I can say two positive things. One is, despite his bluster, he has not 
as promised, moved against the DACA status in his first 10 days in office. Um, that could just be that somebody's reviewing an executive order right now, and you know that could all change even by the time this interview is aired. Um, or he has actually heard the message that has been delivered to him by by DACA students and by by their allies that this is not a group you want to go after. Apparently, um, uh, former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich is mm-hmm. is spearheading that message in the administration that you know that he's suggesting that that would be a losing strategy. So, as we speak, you can still apply for DACA. I mean, it's still mm-hmm. an open program, and certainly there's been no. Since DACA is still open, President Trump hasn't had to make the decision about what do you do with people that already have DACA status. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's modestly reassuring, not hugely. Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, I think this, Yeah, and I think the second thing is that some of the states and some of the cities have really come forward with at least a rhetorical commitment to supporting um, uh, unauthorized residents in their states or cities. Now, I say it's rhetorical, not as a criticism. Push hasn't come to shove yet, so they haven't really had mm-hmm. to do anything. But you know that it's important that the state of California and the University of California and you know institutions here are supporting um, uh, unauthorized residents of, of the state and are committing some resources uh, to to defending their status and and using you know, the attorney general and such to do that. Um, both of those, I think, are positive signs, but ultimately, if President Trump chooses to use the power of the United States government, as he promised to do during the campaign, mm-hmm. um, you know, unauthorized communities uh, will be at risk. Uh, his executive order last week um, seemed to lower the bar for what was a criminal offense that would lead to deportation. Mm-hmm. Um, that gives the Department of Homeland Security the uh, authority to identify people for deportation that had not been previously identified for deportation, whether they will exercise that, uh, in, mm. you know, we, we don't have evidence yet. Um, but, you know, he, has re- he, President Trump, has repeatedly used the phrase two to three million in terms of deportations, mm-hmm. seems to have gotten that number out of whole cloth. But, you know, he also, since facts don't always limit him, if he wants that <laughs> number, maybe, yeah. you know, he will ensure that he gets that number. Now, there are by best estimates, 11.1 million unauthorized immigrants in the United States. So two to three million is less than 11 million. Mm-hmm. That means eight million will will not be subject to deportation under these rules. But then that might be family members or friends mm-hmm. or neighbors. You know, certainly will uh, instill fear. Um, I, you know, I wish I could offer more assuring, reassuring kinds of mm-hmm. comments. But President Trump is changing the rules of the game in a way that have no precedent in American history, mm-hmm. and until um, either Congress chooses to stand up to him or his attention is pulled to other areas, um, you know, the unauthorized immigrants are at risk. Mm-hmm. So let's go on to something that um, you kind of specialize in, which is electorate politics. So where can we go from here as, you know, myself, a Latino student here at UCI who is a natural born citizen. So for the time being, and hopefully for the time in the future, I'm mostly safe because I was born here in the U.S., as were many other Latinos who are probably listening to this show um, and students. So where do we go from here? How how do we go from protesting and, like I said earlier, with the um, ban on the Muslim country immigration, how do we go from protesting and making signs and re- re-blogging things on Facebook and Twitter to actually making you know the change we want to see? 
Well, it's a slow process, and I I wish I could offer you sort of a speedier route, Mm -hmm. but the U.S. system is, the constitutional system is designed to slow rather than to speed um, change. Um, And that's one of the reasons that President Trump is is so unusual in his approach, I think. Um, And he's using powers that, you know, Congress is now starting to say, well, we didn't really mean that. So, you know, Mm -hmm. he will get some limits from Congress. Um, I I think what you have to do is find issues around which you are passionate and build a community that works with you around those issues. Um, It's easy each week to get pulled in a different direction, you know, because there's a women's march this week. There's a uh, protest at an airport that next week because of... um, you know, um, a, a refugee ban, some, who knows what's going to be next weekend, but your energy should be focused on what you most care about. So if it's the rights of immigrants in U.S. society, you know, build around that and try to get other people to follow when you need to have an action, whether it's going to a congressional office or going to a city council meeting because they're passing some you know new restriction mm-hmm. on housing or whatever, um, so that you have a community that you can rely on. Um, you need to build bridges to those who don't necessarily share your opinions. Um, and sometimes that means compromising. Now, there, there are certainly people that will never agree with you and mm-hmm. probably not going to spend much time on them. But there are people that are either burned out on politics, ambivalent about politics, believe that pol- that the system will never listen to them. Those are communities that can be brought into the system. And we don't have great evidence yet, but it seems like that's what President Trump was able to do in mm-hmm. his campaign, sort of bring folks you know that had... were felt marginalized back into the process, at least in a handful of states, and that was enough with the Electoral College. Um, So find your ex-roommate, friend, somebody you went to high school with who isn't involved and find something that he or she cares about and get them involved around that because once they begin to get involved on one thing, they'll get involved. It'll snowball from there. Yeah, from other things. Um, As I've mentioned, um, for folks that are legal permanent residents that are eligible for U.S. citizenship, if they're interested in U.S. citizenship, help them become U.S. citizens. Mm -hmm. Lend them some money to help pay the fee if necessary Um, because the more citizens we have, the more voters we potentially have. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sort of said, well, I'm a natural born citizen, so for now I'm safe. I, I'm enough of a believer in the Constitution to believe that you will be safe for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, citizenship does offer constitutional guarantees uh, that are important and uh, will protect you if you you know, follow different paths in mm-hmm. politics that you wouldn't be protected as as a permanent resident. So mm-hmm. it's important that for people who are committed to the United States, the values of the United States, that they make that step towards citizenship. Um, find local level offices um, where you can, um, you know, influence the election. Consider running for election for school board mm-hmm. or city council. I mean, that's how we get the next generation of leaders, people that are, you know, your age, I imagine in mm-hmm. your 20s and, and get involved at a local level and then and then move up through the system. You know, President Trump is unusual in that he started at the top. Uh, mm-hmm. Most most go through a different path. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's finding your passion. And I know that's facile advice in many ways, but people will get burned out with objecting to whatever President Trump did this week pretty soon. Um, what will sustain the movement and will encourage, you know, Congress ultimately to assert some constitutional authority that it has is the passionate who are involved in a more focused way around something that they care about. Mm-hmm. So kind of uh, to relay it back, um, if if someone, uh, as you said earlier, if someone doesn't want to listen to you and they're going to you know kind of go against the facts, then that is on them and you can't really do anything about it. But uh, you also said that it's important to keep an open mind and to kind of um, 
reach compromises with those people who maybe don't see eye to eye with mm-hmm. you on everything. So if someone was actively trying to get politically active but didn't really know where to start, um, what advice would you have for them, whatever age they are? Well, I think it's you You have to find the issue you care about because um, people often, you know, if you say, oh, do you, should you, do you want to be involved in politics? They'll say, oh, no, no, I don't trust politics. But then they'll say, do you care about your kids' schools? Oh, yeah, of course, you know, because mm-hmm. that, that's something that's, you know, right in their living room and and they do care about and that's ultimately to me political um now obviously if you don't have kids the school example isn't a good one but if it's you know local parks or the 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 cleanliness of the water in you know the pacific ocean or or whatever you know whatever your whatever your passion is or the rights of immigrants or the rights of unauthorized immigrants or the rights of refugees you know whatever get involved in groups that work on those issues and the politics will emerge naturally out of that um it's you know it's not it is important that we vote of course but that's something we do every you know two or four years Mm -hmm. we need to be involved in our communities all the time uh and the only way you're willing to you know give up your tuesday night to be involved in something is because you care about it Mm -hmm. so find you know what it is that you care about here on campus that's easy you know you walk around the ring road there are tables about every possible issue most of the time uh but it's harder when you're you know you're you're not in a campus mm-hmm. when you're working all day, when you're tired and you're, you know, have financial issues because you're trying to have some fun at night. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's harder to find the time to do that. But uh, if ultimately we're going to make the society better, we have to get people more involved. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, we're about reaching the 45 minute mark here on our interview. So um, once again, I'm here with uh, Louis DeCipio, he a professor of Chicano Latino Studies and political science here at UC Irvine. Um, any closing remarks before we go? Anything you'd like to say to our audience for the last bit? <laughs> These are very unusual times. I mean, I, you know, my political memory stretches back to the 1960s, and um, you know, I've been through some some ugly political times, certainly with President Nixon. Um, but uh, President Trump is changing the rules as we go, so it's important that we keep our eye on what's going on and you know try to sort out the fact from the fiction. Um, and um, use our times and energies wisely to try to protect what we want to protect and change what we want to change. Um, all right, awesome. Thank you very much for being here. Once again, this is Miguel Alejandro here for KUCI 88.9 FM. The podcast to this link, uh, to this interview, will be linked on radioandlapal.kuci.org as well as kuci.org. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. <laughs>